welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Groback. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are back in Marpleland. Marpling! We are Marpling, and we are back at the endless pantry dinner party. <laughs> it's almost over, folks. I mean... We, we're almost... There. And they haven't they haven't cannibalized each other or you know <laughs> descended into some sort of twilight zone because clearly they have been at this dinner party for fifty years. I think it's safe to say that they're at least onto the port at this point. <laughs> I mean, is there enough port in the world? Possibly not. Possibly not. <laughs> Although it does seem like one of our fine characters maybe has been hitting the port in order to tell this final story. I gotta say, things get a little a little loose and a little kooky <laughs> they, in this final story here. Definitely do. So this is the affair at the bungalow. And we yes. have finally reached as our narrator. <gasps> oh, Miss Jane Hallier. Such a delight. Uh, Always a delight. I suppose we should mention that the story was first published in the Storyteller magazine in May of 1930. And just to be clear about it, we do keep on referring to this as the final story. It is the final story within the Dolly Bantry dinner party series, which is the second, story number yeah, 12. Yeah, the second half, basically. Yeah. Of- so we had those that first six, which were at Shea Marple. Those were with the original six. <laughs> with not our friend Raymond West. Oh, Raymond West. I can't wait to get back to Raymond West, actually, see what he's been up to. Those are our first six. And then our second six have been this dinner party where our only two characters that continue from one to the other are, of course, Miss Marple and Sir Henry Clithering. And then the 13th, to uh, make this the full 13 problems, also involves Sir Henry Clothering and Miss Marple, but as that one uh, is not at a dinner party and is a bit of a tack-on within the overall collection, this does feel like a fitting ending to what we have been covering here. And we will, of course, be covering that 13th story, but certainly not next week or within the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. I know there are lots of Marple fans listening. We have that to look forward to. And Sir Henry Clothering also is always a welcome presence. Of course. And we do have to spread out our Miss Marple stories because there just is not a lot of Miss Marple in Agatha Christie's early career. And I didn't realize that as a more casual Christie fan before starting this podcast. But except for Murder at the Vicarage, which we already covered, and this short story collection, we really don't get into Miss Marple until the 40s and especially in the 50s and 60s. So... That is why there's a bit of a dearth of marple at the moment. So we're doing our best to spread it thin. For anyone who doesn't think that we love Miss Marple and that we're ignoring her, we just have to wait. We're doing everything we can. We are marpling all that we can right now. (laughs) We are marpling our butts off. So that said, Mm -hmm. let's talk about our victim, Catherine. Well... Okay. Let's just note that it's a little complicated to call anyone a victim in this story. Again, kooky, little crazy, but let's call him our victim and we shall explain what makes this a little bit of a weird situation once we get to our resolution. So I guess the only victim is this young man with red hair named Leslie Faulkner, who has been accused, perhaps erroneously, of robbing a glove. This seems to be a Christie short story involving a theft, not a murder. So we could say the victim is this young man who's accused, perhaps wrongly. There is some sort of wrongdoing going on here. We're not exactly sure who the perpetrators are and who the victims are. But that's, I think, a fair guess, at least at the outset. And certainly the way that 
Jane Hellier begins the yarn, she places Mr. Falconer in the victim role. So I was going to say that the other thing that we should note up front is that um, Jane is mm-hmm. trying very hard to make up uh, names for all these people, too. Yes, she is. And we noticed the ease with which Dolly Bantry made up names in her story. Jane Hellier does not seem to have the same prowess as our dear Mrs. Bantry. Not that that should surprise anyone at this point. So she requires a lot of help from Sir Henry Clothering mm-hmm. in coming up with these names. Indeed. But even in that element of the story, there's more to that than meets the eye, which we will get to when we get to our resolution. If you're not picking up on this, it's really hard, actually, to talk about this story because there's so much deception involved on a storytelling level. Let's just move on. We'll, we'll get there. All will be revealed. Our first suspect is Mary Kerr, who is an actress. No relation to Deborah, I suppose. I never knew it could be like this. Nobody ever kissed me the way you do. Nobody? No, nobody. Not even one? Out of all the men you've been kissed by? <laughs> now that it takes, I'm figuring. How many men do you think there have been? I wouldn't know. Can't you give me a rough estimate? Not without an adding machine. She is at the bungalow at the time of the robbery. Then I suppose we have the servants at the bungalow. There's a parlor maid, mm-hmm, right? There at the, is. We know that there's at least a parlor maid at the bungalow. Yeah. Next, we have Sir Herman Cohen, who is the gentleman with whom Miss Kerr is having an affair. So the bungalow belongs to Sir Herman Cohen and his wife. Mary Kerr, we mentioned, is at the bungalow at the time of the robbery, but it is not her bungalow. It is her lover, Sir Herman Cohen's bungalow. Right. And he had given her a good deal of jewelry. Yes, he had. And that is the jewelry that is said to have been stolen. Right. And then, of course, we can go back to Leslie Falconer himself, since he was, in fact, at the bungalow. Right. So perhaps he isn't a victim and he is accused correctly of having perpetrated this robbery. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be. As we mentioned, yes, we are we are back at Gossington Hall. The candles have almost burnt down to the very end. There's hardly any wick left. It's getting late here, folks, and it's getting hairy. And finally, our final storyteller of the evening is one Jane Hellier. And not surprisingly, Jane begins to tell her story in the dumbest way possible (laughs) because we have been told time and time again and pretty much shown time and time again that Jane Hellier is a dum-dum. A real dum-dum. A real dum-dum. I love the first line of the story. I've thought of something, said Jane Hellier. (laughs) Yes, her beautiful face was lit up with the confident smile of a child expecting approbation. It was a smile such as moved audiences nightly in London and which had made the fortunes of photographers. It happened to a friend (laughs) of mine. (laughs) And then Grizzy writes, everyone made encouraging but slightly hypocritical noises. Colonel Bantry, Mrs. Bantry, Sir Henry Clothering, Dr. (laughs) Lloyd, and old Miss Marple were one and all convinced that Jane's quote-unquote friend was Jane herself. She would have been quite incapable of remembering or taking an interest in anything affecting anyone else. And then Sir Henry Clithering, we're privy to his internal thoughts where he says, now I wonder how many sentences it will be before she forgets to keep up the fiction and says I instead of she. (laughs) And it happens in less than a page. (laughs) You know, and she's like, oh, oh no, oh dear, what have I done? And they all reassure her, yeah, 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 we kind of knew what you were doing the whole time, Jane. You're okay. Never mind, my dear, said Miss Marble, consolingly. We were bound to guess, you know, and you haven't given us the name of the place or anything that really matters. 
And from there on, Jane has to make up names since she doesn't want to say the real people's names, but she never can think of anything. So Sir Henry Clothering has to make suggestions for her. A lot of this hesitation and confusion in the beginning of the story becomes clear when we get to the end of the story. So let's just get right into the story. Once she admits that this was actually happening to her, she tells our assembled party here that she was performing some regional theater and she was contacted by the police. And the police had brought in this man, Leslie Faulkner, and he was brought in on suspicion of having committed a burglary in this bungalow that was a riverside bungalow within this town. And he said that, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't rob any jewels. And the reason that I was down here was to meet the actress Jane Hellier. And I did meet with Jane Hellier in this bungalow, and then I left. And then the next thing I remember is being picked up by you on the side of the road. So let's bring in Jane Hellier and get to the bottom of this. So Jane Hellier obviously has to go to the police station and try to figure out what's going on. When she meets Leslie Faulkner, she says, oh, I've never met this person before in my life. So basically what this man says is that he's a playwright and he had written a bunch of plays that he had sent to Jane Hellier and she wrote him back saying, oh, I love this play that you wrote. This could be a great starring vehicle for me. Let's meet at my bungalow. And then she gave the address and Jane Hellier says, well, I never wrote that. That's not my handwriting. I've never met you before. I don't know what's happening here. So she's confused. Leslie Faulkner is either confused or lying. We don't know what's going on. And then Jane Hellier proceeds to fill out some of the details of this robbery that had taken place. And it turns out that there was an actress who was staying at the bungalow. She was having an affair with an older gentleman. His name is Sir Herman Cohen, and the actress is Mary Kerr. And they're not married. Again, this is an affair. The bungalow was one that Sir Cohen had been keeping for Mary Kerr. He had also bought a bunch of jewels for her, and those are the jewels that had actually been stolen. And the day of this robbery, Mary Kerr had been called up to London for an audition. She had been told that she was going to read for a part, and she sped up there. And then her parlor maid also received a call saying, oh, your mistress forgot something, so you need to run up to London and bring it to her. So that is why the house was empty, according to them, and they have no idea what happened. They don't know who Leslie Faulkner is either. They are totally confused by this. And basically, no one knows anything. To make it more confusing, the assembled guests at the dinner party are about as confused as Kemper and I are, because (laughs) who was the person who pretended to be Miss Hellier? That's thing number one. Because Leslie Faulkner, we should clarify, not only does he claim to have received a letter and to have gone to this bungalow, but he claims to have met with a woman who now that he has met the real Jane Hellier, he realizes wasn't the real Jane Hellier. But he says, no, no, no. A parlor maid opened the door to me. Great. I came in. I was received by a parlor maid. And I sat down and had an interview with a woman who said she was Jane Hellier and who looked like Jane Hellier. And again, lest we forget. She's famous. Jane Hellier is a famous actress. So this woman must have looked something like her. And there is actually a wonderful little exchange. Jane Hellier says, the whole thing was so very queer because after all, he had seen me act and my photographs are very well known, aren't they? Over the length and breadth of England, said Mrs. Bantry promptly. But there's often a lot of difference between a photograph and its original, my dear Jane. And there's a great deal of difference between behind the footlights and off the stage. It's not every actress who stands the test as well as you do, remember. Well, said Jane, slightly mollified, that may be so. (laughs) 
<laughs> but we at least know that the woman superficially resembled Jane Hellier. So who was that woman? Who was the parlor maid? Because the real parlor maid and Mary Kerr, who actually was staying in the house, say that they weren't there. Right. Jane Hellier says that she wasn't there. So what's going on? It, Who's lying? Who's telling well, the truth? What's happening? Right. And I mean, then Dolly Bantry actually has all the best suggestions in this story because she basically separates it apart like, well, yeah, so if you're not going to trust the young man, why are you trusting Mary Kerr and her parlor maid, who easily could have been lying about where they were? Absolutely. Dolly really sets a stage about stealing one's own jewels. Oh, yeah, she gives a whole bunch of reasons. She, it's actually a an Ariadne Oliver-esque passage in which she, just off the top of her head, reels off a whole bunch of different plot points mm-hmm. as to why one would steal their own jewels, one of which is lifted directly from The Adventure of the Western Star. Yes. Within the Poirot Investigates collection, which is that the jewel is fake, essentially. The jewel had already been sold. Right. And she stole them, quote unquote, had them stolen under her nose because she didn't want her husband to realize that the jewel wasn't a real jewel at all. But she has a whole bunch of other of other possibilities. And Jane Hellier is impressed. She 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 says, You are clever, Dolly. I never thought of that. She seems to have not thought about a lot. Yeah. Well. Especially how to clearly tell a story. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really funny. Dolly Bantry is the one who insists that she can't tell a story, that she's not a good storyteller. And in fact, Dolly Bantry's story is one of the more clever stories, I would say, in this part of the collection. Yeah, and partially because she tells it so haltingly, right? right? And then it has to be pulled out of her in an entertaining way. Jane Hellier tells it in fits and starts and is falling all over herself, and it's it's all very confusing. And I actually had to read this story twice to make heads or tails of exactly what was going on. I was confused when I finished the story, and that is the first time this has happened with any short story within this collection, or honestly, any Christie short story at all. Right. Not necessarily in a bad way. I'm not saying I didn't like this one. I actually quite enjoyed it, and I appreciate that Christie's doing something different here, which we'll get to, but it is confusing. <laughs> Even Miss Marple. Miss Marple has a line that says, My dear, I don't really know what to say. Sir Henry will laugh, but I recall no village parallel to help me this time. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the world as it actually is. There really is one clue. We're given it rather late, but... Mm-hmm. Miss Marple is the one to ask a question and receive an answer, so we should be keyed in on that. We always want to know what Miss Marple wants to know, and we should treat it as crucial and important. And what she asked Jane Hellier fairly late in the story is, what play were you acting in? And Jane Hellier tells her, Smith. And Miss Marple responds, oh yes, that's one of Mr. Somerset Malms, isn't it? All his are very clever, I think. I've seen them nearly all. So perhaps an astute reader would then do a little bit of sleuthing or an uber-knowledgeable reader might just know offhand that one of the major roles within Smith is for a parlor maid. And perhaps Jane Hellier was actually playing the role of a parlor maid, meaning that she would have a parlor maid's kit readily available to her while she was staying in this town. That is significant because that implicates Jane Hellier herself in a way that we would not have otherwise gleaned from anything else in this story until we get to the very end of it. Because basically what happens here is that everyone is stumped, including Miss Marple. And there's a lot of disappointment here from everyone else, like that Miss Marple doesn't even know the answer. Then, of course, Jane is like, well, I don't know the answer either. 
you know, we did talk about how in the original six 13 problem stories, Raymond West did not know the answer to his mystery either. But fortunately, Miss Marple was able to pull that answer out within seconds because she is so much smarter and savvier than her poor, poor nephew. Right. But in this case, Jane Hellier seems to have stumped Miss Marple and, of course, everyone else, goes without saying. And they're all annoyed. And rightfully so. I mean, this is the the final story of the evening. And it was one of the rules that you had to know the solution. And she's like, oh, I, I don't know. I thought you would know. No one knows? Oh, well, good night. So it's a little bit of a anticlimactic ending. Or is it, Catherine? Well, it's not. Although I would say... <laughs> I would say one thing about this, and I would say that Miss Marple, I think, takes a stab in the dark because mm-hmm. it's a, I think it's not even clear to her. I mean, she gets an inkling of what is happening towards the very end of the story, but Miss Marple is leaving, and so she's, uh, you know, wrapped in several woolen shawls. And mm-hmm. then as she's saying... She's got to put some wool over that, that cascading lace. <laughs> you can't you can't expose that cascading lace to the elements. Definitely not. That, that mantilla. No, seriously, the weird, the weird mantilla. Yeah. But she um, says goodbye to Jane Hallier and she whispers something to Jane and then she leaves. And we see Jane's eyes kind of widen and we don't know what she said, but we know it's significant because Miss Marble said it. But everyone leaves and the dinner party, I am happy to report... Is over. The dinner party ends, but we're still there. We're still in Gossington Hall. I think that Dolly Bantry even notes how late it is. I suppose we are rather late tonight. Why, it's actually past one o'clock. I think what she's neglecting to say is that it's past one o'clock in like the year <laughs> 2819, but. Um, <laughs> it's, it's well into the future. <laughs> I mean, J- I mean Jane Hellier's story alone took like a year. For her to tell. But I feel like, I feel like that dinner party really probably did begin at 5 p.m. I mean, they really have been there for like eight hours. Right. Which is insane. So kudos to Christy for the continuity there, because it really would have to be the longest dinner party known to mankind. But in any case, we follow Dolly Bantry and Jane Hellier up to Jane's room. And it's up there, woman to woman, when Jane Hellier tells Dolly Bantry what Miss Marple actually said to her. And what did she say, Catherine? Jane Hellyer was pretentiously solemn. Do you know what that queer old lady whispered to me before she went out at the door tonight? You know what? She said, I shouldn't do it if I were you, my dear. Never put yourself too much in another woman's power, even if you do think she's your friend at the time. You know, Dolly, that's awfully true. This is still confusing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no kidding. What we do ultimately find out from Jane Hellier herself, and she discloses this only to Dolly Bantry is that not only was Jane Hellier pretending at first that she was not involved in this story, but Jane Hellier was making the whole thing up. This story never happened. This was a proposal that Jane Hellier was making in her own mind and that she had been in the beginning stages of putting into action, plotting. And she was basically using the dinner party as a sounding board to see if anyone would be able to guess the solution. And no one really was. We can argue, though, that Miss Marple was because her comment to Jane Hellier indicates that she realized what Jane was planning. So what Jane was planning was to pretend that she knew nothing about 
Leslie Faulkner coming up to this cottage when she had actually planned the whole thing herself. So she would select one among the thousands of playwrights who sent their plays to the world-renowned Jane Hellier. She would select one of them, write to them or have someone else write to them or just disguise her handwriting and say, come up to this cottage and let's talk. And obviously that poor playwright would agree. And when they got to the cottage, Jane Hellier herself wouldn't be there, but her understudy would be there because, of course, Jane Hellier had an understudy. And her understudy would be right in the area because they were performing this play, Smith, and she would be playing the role of the parlor maid when this Leslie Faulkner or other poor playwright was admitted. So that's where those people are coming from. The Mary Kerr and real parlor maid of the story would be telling the truth because they actually would have been called out of the house on false pretenses so that the house would be empty. Jane Hellier as parlor maid and her understudy would essentially be breaking into the house and pretending to have this interview with this poor playwright. Right. But the entire point of this is that the real life Mary Kerr Mm -hmm. married Jane Hellier's former husband. Yep. And all Jane wants to do is set up this crime so that she can expose this other actress for sleeping with another man who is not Claude. Exactly. (laughs) Which is so devious. What Jane Hellier is doing is devious, but what Christie is doing here is really devious too, because the crux of the story is Jane Hellier's relationship with a character that hasn't even been mentioned until Jane Hellier explains what's going on here, which is the real life Mary Kerr's husband. So that's the person who Jane Hellier used to be married to and who she wants to hurt by exposing the real Mary Kerr for being unfaithful. It's less I think that she wants to hurt her ex-husband so much as she wants to hurt the woman that she blames. The woman who stole her husband away. Agreed. Agreed. I think she kind of wants to hurt both of them. And we are, though. I mean, Christy, she always does give us all the information. She plays fair, as always, because when Jane Hellier is telling a story, she says... I think, as a matter of fact, Sir Herman tried to hush things up all he knew how, but he couldn't manage it, and I rather fancy his wife started divorce proceedings in consequence. Right. Still, I don't really know about that. That's Sir Herman's wife, but that would obviously lead to accusations against Mary Kerr, and given that she's married to someone else, which I don't know if we're ever actually given that information, that Mary Kerr is married. Mm. No, we are. We are. So Christy plays fair with that, too. She does specify, Jane Hillier does specify that Mary Kerr was the wife of an actor and also an actress herself. Right. So it's devious on that level. But what I love, given the fact that we've discussed before, this is our third blue-eyed Jane, right? We have Mm -hmm. Miss Jane Marple, Miss Jane Hillier, and of course... My favorite and Catherine's nemesis, arch nemesis, (laughs) Jane Wilkinson from Lord Edgeware Dies. Don't underestimate these Janes or do so at your peril because Jane Hellier pretended to be confused in how she was telling the story and making up the fact that it was happening to someone else when it was really happening to her. That was all part of her plot all along. You know what, Catherine? I'm going to come out and make a bold statement here. I think Jane Hellier is a genius too. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, 
I actually don't because I don't want to undermine my real belief in Jane Wilkinson's genius, which I still stand by. I don't actually think Jane Hellyer is a genius. She's devious and she's conniving. And she does say at the end of the story. That she's a very good actress. That she's a very good actress. And she is. And we underestimated her along with all the other guests at the dinner party in the telling of the story. That's not to say that she's a Machiavellian genius, but I think it's fair to say we underestimated her. Or at least her petty vindictiveness. Sure, but she put on an act with Sir Henry Clithering and as he was supplying all the names and perhaps it was confusing to her anyway, but still, I mean, this was all, she was doing what our beloved Mr. Poirot and our beloved Miss Marple do all the time, which is using the way that other people perceive her to her own advantage. No, that's definitely true. She knows that everyone thinks she's stupid. Everyone thinks she's a dumb actress. So she said, you know what? I'm going to use these people as a sounding board for my cunning plan and see if they can figure out what I'm doing here. And she played up her stupidity and she fooled everyone except for Miss Marple. That's not bad. I do love that the story ends on Jane Hellyer saying, you know what, I'm not going to do it because Miss Marple figured it out. And she says, there might be other Miss Marples, (laughs) dot, dot, dot. And I think for Catherine and her dark Marple theory, that's a pretty terrifying notion. (laughs) I think it should strike fear in the hearts of all who are thinking about committing a crime. (laughs) That's true. It should strike fear in the hearts of criminals everywhere. But but, you know what I would argue? There actually aren't any other Miss Marples. She's one of a kind. So I think Jane Hellier would probably be fine if she committed this crime. I don't think anyone would be able to figure out. Although I guess Miss Marple would hear about it and then she would turn her in because Miss Marple has no scruples about turning in a criminal. No, Miss Marple turns in. Miss Marple would wait approximately zero seconds to turn in Jane Hellier. But what's nice is that Jane Hellier thinks... The reason why Miss Marple didn't call her out in front of everyone at the dinner party was she didn't like to do it in front of the gentleman. She acted in a we ladies have to stick together kind of a way, even though her counsel was the opposite because her warning was women often turn on each other. And that is specifically as to Jane Hellier's understudy, right? Because the understudy for this thing to work has to know everything that Jane Hellier is doing and how easy would it be for that understudy to just turn around and say, okay, now you need to pay me 500 pounds to keep quiet or else I'm going to go to the police. Absolutely. And Jane never thought of that. So, so perhaps she is not the smoothest operator. No need to ask. He's a smooth operator. she's the smoothest, but she's certainly smoother than we gave her credit for. Again, don't underestimate those Janes, Catherine. (laughs) Well, I would (laughs) never underestimate Jane Marple because obviously she is a Machiavellian genius. The actress Janes, I don't know so much about. By the way, there is a weird confluence of the names, which I don't know if it's on purpose or not, where we find out that Jane Hellier's real husband is named Claude. And that's also the name that's used for Mary Kerr's husband, I believe, when they're going through the names. Right. I mean, it's a, that's a slip up, isn't it? I guess it's a slip up of Jane's. No, because you know why? Because Sir Henry suggests the name. Right, because they know that it's her ex-husband. I guess. So that that's why. So it's not really a coincidence. It's just that he used her ex-husband's name and she went with it. Right. I also kind of think that Christy figured this is confusing enough. Why don't I just have it be the same name? <laughs> it's a head scratcher a little, this one. Yeah, because Sir Henry says we'll call the actor Claude Leeson and then Dolly Bantry 
when she's thinking about Jane Hellier's ex-husband, says that his name was his name was Claude. Claude Averbury, though. So it's yes. a diff- so it really is a different <laughs> name. It's just that the Claude was the same. I just thought that that was curious. Yeah, it seems like a mistake on somebody's yeah. part. I don't think Christie's, but somebody in the dinner party. That they just thought Claude because they knew that her husband was named. Because they know. Named yeah. Yeah. The only other thing I'll say also about that clue is that I, I did appreciate it has the Christie corollary of never underestimating the help because the part of the reason why the renowned Jane Hellier could pull this off in Parlor Maid Kit is that no one would look at her because she was a parlor maid. So I appreciate the consistency of that. Well, right. And and sort of related to that, um, also don't um, underestimate your understudy. And never, ever underestimate an actor. <laughs> done with the Dolly Bantry dinner party in Gossington Hall. For now, we will be revisiting the Bantries in Gossington Hall in the future. And as we mentioned, we will be covering that 13th Miss Marple short story at some point. But in the meantime, we have a novel for our next episode. That novel would be Dumb Witness. Dumb Witness, our next Poirot. I believe that we are more than halfway through our glut of Poirots in the 30s. So we're we're beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Not that Mr. Poirot is a tunnel of oh, darkness. I know. Hey. But it's, it's a lot of Poirot all at once. As we've mentioned before, we understand why Christy herself grew sick of our dear little Belgian. And this one does have a dog in it. Yes, it does. The titular dumb witness, in fact. And get excited, Catherine, because we've got some real-life parallels to Agatha Christie's relationship with her own dog. I will look forward to you telling all of our listeners about those parallels at length. Her beloved dog, Peter, as opposed to the dog in the novel whose name is Bob. I love when dogs are given mundane human names, so this is very exciting. In the meantime, contact us as always. You can do so via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or on Twitter at allaboutthedame or contact Catherine at Brobcat or find us on Facebook or Facebook pages All About Agatha. We're also on Instagram at All About Agatha. And we would very much appreciate it if you take a moment to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.